0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical-free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Um, listen, I am stunned, surprised at how much I discovered I love church history. My final three classes in uh, my uh, MDiv program, uh, final two had to be something of church history. I loved it so love those classes, the ancient church and the Reformation church so much that I chose uh, to also take history of the church in America. And man, it's just so inspiring. Um, all three epics, from the time of of uh, the closing of the canon and the second, uh, second century church, all the way up to modern times, there's so much that we can learn from church history. I want to give you an account uh, of something that took place here in this nation as well as across the pond in in the Western nations over there, um, described as the second great awakening. This is uh, from scholar and preacher J. Edwin Orr who tells this account. In the wake of the American Revolution, so the year 1776 to 1781, there was great moral and spiritual darkness across North America and all Western nations. Drunkenness was epidemic. Out of a population in North America of 5 million, 300,000 were confirmed as drunkards. And we were burying 15,000 alcoholics per year. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of America, women were afraid to go out at night for fear of assault, and bank robberies were a daily occurrence. The Methodists were losing members, more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said that they had the most, quote, wintry season. The Presbyterians in the General Assembly deplored the nation's ungodliness— Reverend Samuel Shepard, he was a typical congregational pastor in Lennox, Massachusetts, said that he had not taken one person into membership in the previous 16 years. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians, who, if you can imagine that, who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit. He quit. Why? He had confirmed that no one for so long had decided that he, to join the church that he figured he was out of work, so he started a new line of employment. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. Voltaire averred, and Tom Paine echoed, quote, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. A poll taken at Harvard had discovered not one single believer in the entire student body. They took a poll at Princeton, a much more evangelical university, where they discovered only two believers in the entire student body. And only five that did not belong to, the, to the, what was called the filthy speech movement of the day. Students rioted, They held mock communion at Williams College. They put on anti-Christian plays at Dartmouth. They burned down the Nassau Hill Hall at Princeton. They forced the resignation of of the president of Harvard. They took a Bible out of the local Presbyterian church in New Jersey. They burnt it in a public bonfire. Christians were so few on those campuses in the 1790s that they met in secret. And they took their club meeting minutes in code, so no one would know. But then something began to change. Is that is that amazing? As we look back at history and we forget these stories, that the nation was in a deplorable spiritual and moral condition. We're so terrified what's going on right now, and we should be. But something began to change, and what was it? Edwin Orr goes on. A prayer movement had started in Britain through William Carey, Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, and others, and began what the British called the Union of Prayer from 1792 to the year 1800. And the year after John Wesley died in 1791, the Second Great Awakening began in Great Britain. Well, on this side of the pond in New England, there was a man of prayer named Isaac Bacchus, He was a Baptist minister who in 1794, when conditions were at their worst, addressed an urgent plea for prayer revival to pastors of every Christian denomination in the United States. The the conditions were so terrible, so hopeless, so dark, that virtually every church adopted the plan in America. Until, like Britain... America was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings, which set aside the first Monday of each month to pray. And it wasn't long thereafter that revival came to North America. When the revival reached the frontier in Kentucky, it encountered a people wild and irreligious. Congress had discovered that in Kentucky, there had not been More than one court of justice held in the previous five years. That's how lawless it was. Peter Cartwright, Methodist evangelist, wrote that when his father had settled in Logan County, it was known as Rogue's Harbor. The decent people of Kentucky formed a regiment of vigilantes to fight for law and order. They fought a pitched battle against lawlessness and they lost. The outlaws were so numerous. Scotch-Irish Presbyterian minister, one of my favorite characters from the history of the church in America, James McGreedy. His chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly that he ran people distracted. I mean, you had to stop and look at this guy and go, oh my goodness, look at him. They said that his, his voice was coarse and tremulous. Small, beady, piercing eyes, just interesting guy, and yet God's hand on this man. He settled in Logan County, pastor of three little churches. He wrote in in his diary in the winter of 1799, for the most part, and I quote, weeping and mourning with the people of God. It was so dark. McGrady was such a man of prayer that not only did he promote the concert of prayer every first Monday of the month, he got his people to pray for him at sunset on Saturday night, and then at sunrise again on Sunday morning, so he could preach with power. And the people responded. In the summer of 1800, came the great Kentucky revival. Eleven thousand people came to a communion service. And Magritte called for help, and it didn't matter what denominational background, just, I need help shepherding so great a harvest. And they came. And out of this second great awakening came the whole entire modern missionary movement and its societies. Out of it came the abolition of slavery. Out of it came popular education, Bible societies, the Sunday school movement and many other social benefits accompanying the evangelistic drive. This is a history of the second great awakening. You know, Dr. A.T. Pearson once said this, and I believe it. I've, I've studied it, but this is what he says. There's never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. Are we a praying people? In the 4th century, John Chrysostom said this, The potency of prayer has subdued subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt, Prayer is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mind that is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. Journey Church, are we a church of prayer? Let us learn to pray. And not just pray but strategic prayer. Prayer for big things. Prayer for missional things. Prayer for revival. Prayer for spiritual awakening. And let us be a people that learn to pray theologically sound, biblically aligned, Christ-honoring and effective prayers. And this morning, may I, may I offer you my opinion that after learning and And learning to pray through the the design of the Lord's Prayer, let us also look to the prayers of a missionary named the Apostle Paul. Why? Because after Jesus, I don't know that anyone cared as much for the mission of the gospel and the kingdom of God than the Apostle Paul. And he prayed for revival and awakening. These are the prayers of a missionary. This is part one. And today I I call this discipleship and evangelism oriented prayer. And our text today is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 5 or 8 through 15. And then we're going to also jump briefly at the end to Romans chapter 10. So it says here. In Romans 1, we'll just take the first text on its own, written in 57 to 58 AD by the Apostle Paul, to a people he did not lead to Christ, to a, pe- to a church he did not plant. He had only heard about them, and this is what he writes to them, Romans 1, 8 through 15, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let me just take a moment and explain this obligation for a moment the word means that he was a debtor he owed a debt to someone what was that debt well it was jesus christ himself who reached down and saved a religious madman named saul of tarsus saul of tarsus was a crazy self-righteous legalistic jew who hated jesus Hated Christians and hated the church. Hated them. Wanted to kill them and snuff it out. And yet Jesus the Christ radically saved Saul of Tarsus. Radically transformed him and appointed him as an evangelist and an apostle. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the apostle. And he recognized that he was not so noble that he believed in God. That God had to intervene and show up and stop him in his tracks. And so his life, whole life was fully yielded and dedicated like, like he belonged in the lake of fire and he knew it. But God stepped in and saved him. He was a debtor to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was also a debtor to so many others that were walking in the blindness of their own hearts. And specifically, we learn in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul was uniquely called, and we actually saw it in our scripture reading, that he was uniquely called as, as a, a very, very Jewish man who understood Jews better than anyone else and was more qualified to reach the Jews, and yet it was the Lord Jesus Christ that said, yeah, but for you, your primary mission field is going to be the non-Jews. The Gentiles. Peter was going to be called to continue a ministry with the Jews according to Galatians chapter 2. Now, what does that have to do with us? Because I'm not the Apostle Paul. Neither are you. What do I have to do with the Apostle Paul's prayer life and how he describes prayer in Romans chapter 1? And I'm going to just give you two bookends, one that was written several years before Romans 1 and one that was written several years after Romans 1. What do I have to do with Paul in his prayer life? Listen to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says to the church at Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word there in the Greek, it's, it sounds similar, a cognate. mimete. Mimite. Where we get the word "mime, or mimic," or act, act and, and pretend to be that person. We're supposed to mimic Paul. First and foremost, we're to mimic the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In fact, first uh, John chapter four, verse 17, John says, "As he, Jesus, is." So, also, are, so are we in this world. We are to mimic Jesus Christ. But Paul would say we are also to mimic spiritually mature followers of Jesus. They give us an example, almost a head start. We don't have to rethink everything. So, Paul's saying, I'm one of those guys. Mimic me. As long as I am mimicking Christ, that's a few years before Romans 1. And then look, look, in Philippians 3, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And then he adds to the collection of people we could mimic. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there, there's more, there's more uh, mentors, models, examples than only Paul. So that's the precedent that Paul is setting up for us is that we can look to his life as one who knows the Lord and walks with the Lord. Let me ask you, do you have any any models, any mentors in your life? Someone that's a a step or two in front of you that you're going, I'm going to model Whether they know it or not, I am watching their faith. In question, are you that model for someone else? Because this is the storyline of growing in faith. And becoming more like Jesus. So, let's acknowledge there is no big A apostles in this room. That's first century. They knew Jesus firsthand personally. Maybe apostolic-like leaders, small a, but no big A apostles. Uh, You likely are not a church planter. What do we have to do with Paul? He has a different vocation. Well, we are called not to the same vocation, but we are called to imitation. That's our bottom line for the message today, or actually for the sermon series. Just kind of teeing that up for the next three weeks after today. We're looking at the prayers of a missionary. Someone who loved the Lord Jesus, whose life was radically transformed that was giving his full heart and mind and soul to the mission of Christ and the gospel in this world. And we are to look to him, different vocation, but called to imitation, his attitude, the way he thought, the way he lived, and how he prayed. Ready to get started? Let's jump back into Romans 1 and see what's going on here. And the first thing that I want to point out to you is the love, the love that had been produced in his heart. As the love of Christ came to him and transformed him, the Holy Spirit came into his life. And this mean, nasty, self righteous, religious dude that enjoyed the murder of Stephen, he enjoyed it, is suddenly gushing with love for people that he didn't even lead to christ to a church he didn't even plant he had never yet even even been to rome what business does he have writing the letter to the romans it was love listen to the language i thank my god through jesus christ for all of you i'm just so thankful god i hear about them and thank you for that church i've never been to Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. Without ceasing, I mention to you, look, you you can't, and then he goes on to say, always in my prayer. Grateful, unceasing, unstopping, ongoing prayer flowing from a heart of, what? Love. Love that drove him to gratitude and thanksgiving. Here's the point, Christ-like growing in Christ, becoming mature in Christ means that you can pass a theology test right that's what it said no it, it means that love is in your heart you're a loving person you're more loving you might be a, a rascal like me I'm not very loving my old man, my old nature, my flesh I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mess. Any good thing you come you see coming out of this man is holy spirit produced so if you think i've ever been nice or good or kind or loving that's jesus let me tell you but if you have jesus you become kind loving and good look what what it says here this this christ likeness produces love and continual prayer for fellow believers that's the fill in the blank Christ-likeness produces love, and love produces continual, I could set it that way, and the love produces continual prayer for fellow believers, without ceasing and always, by the way, this was normal, I'm going to give you a quick survey of how many times he said something similar, it's going to blow your mind, Ephesians 1.6, different church, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, Philippians, different church. Philippians 1.3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Colossians 1.13, different church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. 1 Thessalonians, that's a, d- a different church than the other five so far. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So those are like five, six, seven churches. Whole churches in towns that he's praying for. But then watch this. Now he prays for an individual named Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3. I thank God all as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. How big is this guy's prayer list? Do you have a prayer list? Because that's what love is generating in Paul. And then Philemon's four. And Philemon was a, was a slave owner who became a Christian. And he lost a slave named Onesimus, who Paul led to faith in Christ. And Paul was returning Onesimus and says, treat him like a brother. But he knew this guy, Philemon, and he, he opens his letter in Philemon, chapter, verse 4. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. How big was his prayer list? How many churches? How did he have time to pray this much? And he's saying, "Mimete." This is is just Christ-likeness, that it produces love and an unceasing prayer for other Christians that flows out of a heart of love. That's the second thing I want to just point out once more. This love thing that happens in God's people, as God changes us, man, this has been going on for eons of time. You know, this is interesting, the the Old Testament believers simply did not have the Holy Spirit in the way we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there, a different ministry to them, but it was different, and we can prove that by the very words of Jesus. And yet, believers in the Old Covenant, God produced great love in them for fellow believers. This is my favorite psalm. When I die someday, Psalm 16 will probably be preached as part of it. Psalm 16, verse 3, King David says, As for the saints who are in the land, they are your holy ones in whom is all my delight. He loved, loved the people of God. Even ones he probably didn't get along with well or agree with. He just loved God and loved God's people because of it. And then we see here in a a sermon series that's going to come up in the fall. We're going to take it all the way up to Christmas time in 1 John. John writes this in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we passed from death to life because we love the brothers. It's a hallmark of of the new birth. And that you do, in fact, have the Holy Spirit in you you love fellow Christians and then he goes on to say whoever does not love abides in death meaning if you're a mean nasty person and you are cynical and angsty against Christians it puts your faith on a really really shaky ground a questionable ground it's not okay love love generated Christ-likeness generating love for Christians. Generating love and continual prayer for fellow believers. And then we're just told to do it. Like you don't even have to wait for anything that's, that even feels emotive. Make a decision to love. This is actually found at the end of, of Ephesians. At the end of the great armor of God passage and we got to kind of back up so that we get the flow of thought in the full sentence it's pauline it's a pauline run-on sentence so i really want you to hear the final phrase but we got to actually uh use like three verses to get there he says in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god now watch this praying at all times how often all times, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert, with all preserva- pr- pr- perseverance, making supplication for how many of the saints? All. all the time, all the people of God. Like, do it, that's what Christians do. That's what Christ-likeness generates and produces in our life and the last thing I want to point out b- out before we move on, what was it that got him so jubilant and excited about the church in Rome? It was their Christian witness. He had heard about the quality of their faith. Verse eight, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. News hit his ear at, at what amazing transformation took place in pagan greco-roman people in rome and when he heard about the way god was able to change these pagans into christ followers man his heart was bursting with joy it's a little bit later on in his letter to the romans that he writes this romans 6 chapter 6 five chapters later but thanks be to god that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is a great, great phrase in the Greek. The standard of teaching, tupostidaskalos. It, it's, it's a kind of teaching that's not just information, knowledge, so you can pass the Bible study exam, but it's head, heart, hands. They were fully transformed, their wallets were transformed. Their their sexual ethics were transformed. They became obedient from the heart to the head, heart, hands kind of teaching of the faith. And this is what he's reflecting on, that I not only heard about it, but I hear it rumored around the Roman Empire. You guys are a bright witness around the world. He loves the gospel. What that does is for fellow believers that are struggling, it it gives them encouragement and excitement. Go, whoa, it's real. I'm struggling, but look at that. And then it creates what's called a plausibility structure for others who are far from Christ. It goes, what? They were pagans? They've turned to Christ? And it's a plausibility structure for them to consider the possibility that if the gospel is for those people, perhaps the gospel is for me and Paul is so excited he can't stop praying night or day for this group of people love for the gospel love for these people generated unceasing prayer let me ask you are you a prayerful prayerful person for fellow believers because that is a prayer that's a love index Okay, how prayerful am I? To the degree that you are prayerful is the degree to which you can say, Yeah, I'm about that loving. Augustine of Hippo said this He that loveth little prayeth little. And he that loveth much prayeth much. Is that too cool? God created us loving, prayerful hearts. Amen. Amen. Well, it didn't stop there. Because you know what happens when you start praying for people? Praying for ministries? Praying for a nation or a church in a foreign place? You know what happens? When you are constantly praying for someone, you cannot wait to be there with them. And that is what happened with Paul. He wanted to get to Rome. And so he says this, I long to see you, verse 11, I long to see that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's tried to get there. It looks like it might be working in that direction, but he ends this, uh, verse 13 says, in order that I might reap some harvest among you. He wants to actually minister them. And here's what happens. When we grow in Christ... Christ's love grows in us. Christ's love inspires prayer for others. And prayer for others inspires a desire to positively impact them. You will become passionate for discipleship gains in other Christians' lives. I want to enrich them. I want to offer myself so that someone else could know the Lord at least as much as I've come to know the Lord. Right? But then there's this reciprocity that happens when we think we're giving our lives away and our spiritual gifting and what we've come to know and learn about the Lord and we want to use it to inspire someone else. Guess what happens? It's called reciprocity. Something comes back to us as well and you can never outgive the Lord, when we give ourselves away. And that's what Paul says here. That I want to get there. I want to add to you. I think I could have some discipleship gains among you. A spiritual harvest among you. But let's not count this out. He had been doing it long enough to know, and you are going to blow me away too. Can't wait to see you. Notice the order of operations. Pray like crazy, wow, I can't wait to be there. I can't wait to give myself away. And then, surprise, surprise, you discover life. One of my favorite quotes on prayer, S.D. Gordon once said this, and notice the order of operations, I love this. The greatest thing one can do for God and for men is to pray. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer is striking the winning blow. And service is gathering up the results. You see that? This prayer, this love, this prayer Say, I gotta be there. Can't wait. Gotta meet you. And in that order. But if we think that praying for existing believers only is the end of the road, we would be wrong. We are supposed to pray for Christians everywhere and all the time. Entire churches, entire people groups. We are also to pray for those yet unconvinced by the gospel. We look back here and we see that Paul not only wants to reap some harvest among these people, this church, but he also says this. Let me back up to to 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Why does he want to get to them? In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I not only want to minister in the church, I think that there's also a harvest for me among pre believers I have an evangelist heart I can't wait to get to Rome I want to encourage the church I want to train equip and model for you evangelism around Rome and he goes on to say that I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians to the wise and foolish I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome there's a couple of of different groups that I want to just point out Greeks would be Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. That he is under obligation. He wants to share the gospel with Greek-speaking non-Jewish people. But then he says barbarians. Who are they? This word is poetic, Meaning it sounds like what it's trying to communicate into the Greek speaker, Greco-Roman society. When they heard foreigners talk... They heard it as bar, 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 bar. So Barbara is a funny name that sounds like this thing. Don't tell Barb I said that. But it's it's like Babel. And so these were the non-Greek speakers. Then he names two other kinds of people, to the wise and the foolish. The wise would be educated. Educated and the foolish would be the country bumpkins and hicks, all who are not Jewish. And Paul goes, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to be in the streets and in the marketplace, in the synagogues, or wherever I can get an uh, an audience, I want to share the gospel. So we see his prayer for the church in Rome. He wants to get there. He wants to build them qualitatively and add to them quantitatively. But here's the question. I've actually heard this three times from three radically different theological systems. Three times. One from, uh, well, I'll I'll keep the names out of it, but these people couldn't, they were were all over the map theologically, but I've heard this. You know, the Bible never tells us to pray for non-believers. We're only supposed to pray for Christians and the church to be a faithful witness. You ever heard that? Two, three very different people across my years. And I just, I love the gotcha moment where I go, oh, they didn't read this verse in Romans 10 then. Because it's just flat out not true. Romans 10. And I want, want to just give you a little context before I, I, I close this. And is this, Paul was a debtor to Greeks, to Gentiles should I say. He was uniquely called to non-Jewish people. Question, did he forget his own Jewish kinsmen? Did he say, nope, you're Jewish, I can't talk to you about the Lord? No. See, Paul had a very specific vocation, but he had a broken, bleeding heart for a very difficult-to-reach people group called the Jews so fascinating. Did you know that the first 8,000 converts to Christ were all Jews? You read it in the early chapters of Acts. They were 100% Jewish. But by the time Romans was written in 57 to 58 AD, the harvest among the Jews had come to a trickle, if that. You go, well, they're hopeless. They've had their chance. Walk away. And Paul goes... My heart is broken, bruised, and bleeding. And he says this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. My prayer to God, I am praying to God for what? That they may be saved. We're supposed to pray for non-Christians. Individuals and entire people groups. According to Paul. We mimic, mimite, and I could even argue Jesus when, when in the upper room, he said, I pray not only for these, but those who will believe in the future because of their testimony. I'm praying for non-believers. We are to pray for non-believers. He not only loved outreach, and he wanted to get there, and he wanted to be a part of a spiritual harvest of conversion of lost souls, but he prayed evangelistic prayers for lost souls as well. And here's the final fill in the blank. Christ-likeness generates evangelistic prayer and intentional outreach. Amen? Let us pray like Paul. Not the same vocation, but called to imitation. You know what? I love church history. But I don't want to just read church history. I want to make church history. How about you? That will not happen without prayer. That will not happen with lots of co- concerted, agreeing prayer. Prayer within a church, prayer between churches, prayer uh, within a do- denomination, prayer across denominations. It will not happen without prayer. Journey Church, are we praying? E.M. Bowne said this, The man who has prayed many acceptable prayers has done the truest and greatest service to the incoming generation. To a praying church, God is present in glorious power. Prayer is God's settled and singular condition to move ahead his son's kingdom. Let us be a people of prayer in moving ahead his son's kingdom. Pray for people, pray for the church, pray for the lost, pray for the, the fields ripe unto harvest... And move ahead his son's kingdom. We cannot raise up a new generation of believers. We cannot raise up a children in our own church that will own their faith and take it on to the future. We simply cannot do these things without prayer. So let us pray. On the screen here we have some prayer requests just reviewing. We're going to give you a few moments while the band comes up on the platform. And I want to ask you to just read this through and pray it under your breath back to the Lord down the line. Pray for Christians. It can be a specific person or a specific group or an entire church or a nation of church. A loving heart and prayer typically leads you to go, how can I get, get there? What could I do? And then move on to pray for non-Christians, a specific non-Christian Or an entire entire people group that is, is yet to be reached. Ask the Lord what you might do to participate and be the answer to your own prayer for them. That's number five. Take some time and pray. Father God, light us up by your Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, produce a great love for you and fellow Christians in our heart, the spirit of fellowship and unity. Let us be the fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus in the upper room, that the world might know that we are truly disciples of Christ by the love we have for one another. But Lord, also like Paul, Lord, we we look around and he was praying for Rome and and even people that weren't yet in the church and born again. In the same way, we pray for our community, we pray for the lost throughout North America and around the world. As we did in our pastoral prayer this morning, give us a heart for these people, a prayerful heart, a pleading heart. Then Lord, open doors, open doors, Open our eyes that we might see see the fields ripe unto harvest and and give us courage to walk through those doors, to ask a good question, to care for the heart of a lost soul, to speak a good word now and again, like, like salted speech, seasoned as it were with salt. Lord, make us a praying church, and we pray it together in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.